Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Day Zero podcast, our first one after our break. Uh, it's good to see everybody again. Uh, we're also coming back with a format change, so I thought we'd go through that quickly at the uh, top of the episode. Uh, instead of just doing one podcast per week, we're going to be splitting them up and we're going to be doing two per week. Um, so we're going to be continuing the Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Um, on these days, we're going to be covering bounties and some of the higher level web issues and research. And then on Tuesdays uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Pacific, we're going to be covering uh, the more binary level topics uh, going into lower level. And the reasoning for that is just by splitting it up, it allows us to cover the topics uh, a little bit more in depth. Um, and I think it will make it easier for people to to tune in to exactly what they want, because people who want to see the bounty stuff and the web stuff might not necessarily be interested in the uh, the low level stuff and vice versa. So, yeah, we just want to we want to try out splitting it up. Um, and that, that's that's how we're going to be doing the podcast going forward. So yeah. I just wanted to let you guys know that. We'll see how it goes, um, especially tomorrow's stream uh, with the binary content. I mean, if things go well, we'll stick with that. If not, I mean, maybe we'll go back to normal. Maybe we'll try something different. But yeah, just uh, also just having some shorter episodes, it's a little bit easier to uh, consume them. Yeah, for sure. We'll have like two half hour, 45 minute episodes instead of one like hour and a half episode. So Watch us run long right off the start. I know. We just jinxed it. <laughs> I love it. Um, we also have a, a kind of a new thing that we added to spice things up. We have a a starting soon pre-stream, and in that pre-stream, we have a spot the vault challenge. Um, just kind of a fun thing to throw in there. Uh, nothing too crazy, just like a mini CTF challenge almost. Uh, I actually, we did these with the PS4 streams that I was doing. Uh, Z made up some challenge problems, and then I'd put it on on the break, and then we'd talk about it coming back. Um, so what we're going to do with that on the podcast is for the pre-stream of Monday streams, we're going to be showing the spot the ball challenge, and then we'll cover the solution on the Tuesday stream. Um, so just kind of a, just a fun thing for, for those of you who like to come in early. Um, so, so keep a lookout for that. Um, but yeah, before we get into topics, I figure we'll talk a little bit about the summer, uh, what's been going on for the last couple months. Um, for those of you who are around, we did do some DEF CON streams. Uh, we covered some DEF CON talks. We had a lot of fun doing that, so we may do more such streams. Um, Z's been reaching out and just trying to see which conferences we can cover, because we don't want to, you know... Got to be aware of copyright issues. Exactly. Um, is... We don't want to step on any toes. Yeah, so a lot of conferences just don't release their videos with any particular license. I've been trying to dig into that a little bit. I'd also say, I mean, if you got any, like, favorite conference talks, we aren't... I mean, DEF CON was kind of done because DEF CON was happening. But I think going forward, if we do a few more of those, I wouldn't mind just covering, you know, some highlights, some favorite talks. So if you have any, you know, feel free to DM myself or Spectre and let us know a good talk to check out. Yeah, uh, or you can even link them in the Discord, too. Yeah. Um, in our Discord, we have uh, a channel that would be perfect for that and the, and the links and news. So, uh, And yeah, see, just link that in the chat for you guys. So perfect. If you're not in the Discord, go and check it out. Um, we're, we're always happy to, to chat in there and, and whatnot. Uh, Kubli, thank you for the Tier 1 sub. Five months. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm talking about DEF CON a little bit. Uh, it was a little bit interesting this year. First times, uh, like last year, DEF CON was not in person at all. It was totally virtual. This year, it they did have an in-person conference. Uh, it was... Uh, did you see what the attendance was for that? Did they post those numbers, see? I actually... I didn't even look to see if they posted attendance numbers. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, usually I want to see. I'm not sure how quickly they post them, though. Yeah, no, I, I don't think, uh, I just took a quick look on the blog and it doesn't I, seem like there's much I want to say they were pre-selling tickets. I think it was like five or 6,000 tickets were being pre-sold. So from that, um, I mean, that doesn't include anybody that just showed up. Yeah. But I mean, that's going to give you, I think, a fair ballpark number. I can't imagine that like double that showed up or something. No, I imagine the numbers were fairly low because 
the travel restrictions were quite a problem for a lot of people. Um, I know some people from Europe kind of wanted to go, but it just wasn't really feasible for them to. Um, even in Canada, I mean, we, we can fly to the U.S., but there are some... You have to do, like, tests and stuff like that. It's it's not, like, a super fun pro process. So I didn't think... I didn't think there were too many people who really went to DEFCON this year. Um, I was I was really close to going. Um, when we were in July, I was towards the uh, middle of July. I was basically planning on going. It was only after I looked at all the like border restrictions and stuff. I was like, okay, maybe I won't. And then I just didn't. But um, I had considered going. Um, I would have uh, driven down there. They didn't open the land border, so... That wouldn't happen. Yeah. I, wh who would want to fly? Yeah, no, nobody. <laughs> I, I'd rather, Flying I'd sucks. rather drive in the in the desert heat. You'd rather drive for five days. Pretty much. So, yeah, that's that's a pretty good uh, telltale of how how much flying sucks, especially during uh, during COVID. Um, it has led to an interesting question, though, of like, are we going to get CCC in person? Obviously, all we can do is speculate. CCC hasn't come out with any official statements on the on that. I feel like it's probably not going to happen because I remember back in 2019, I think, um, that CCC, they planned really late. Usually they planned them, I think, in like June, July. That one they planned at like end of August. And they said they would never do it again. They said it was such a nightmare from a logistics standpoint that they will never plan the conference that late. So if we're going into September and it doesn't really seem like anybody knows if it's going to be in person yet, I feel like it's kind of a long shot that it will be in person because the operational overhead on organizing that is probably just going to be massive at this point. I mean, it's only it's only two months away at this point or uh, three months away. So it, but it will be interesting to see. I, I could be wrong. Maybe they'll announce that there will be uh, in person uh, conference, but. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we we don't know. It, it it is as you said, pure speculation at this point. I don't even know what what they'll do. Cause, like, I feel like you know, COVID might be on the down by then. I'm not exactly. I mean, we're entering you know fourth wave or whatever you want to call it, or dealing with you know fourth peak, whatever people are calling it now. <laughs> I I don't know. Um. I I don't even really have a same speculation on what they would decide. Yeah. But on that note, at least CCC does put out their talks under Creative Commons, uh, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, and CCC they always put does. out their talks online. So we'll be able to see the talks and they, they will have the talks just like last year, even if the conference isn't going. So um, at least we're not going to lose out on that. Right. So. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, been kind of an interesting summer. I, I was hoping to be able to go out to DEF CON and, and maybe meet up with some people, but just didn't end up happening. Uh, wasn't in the cards, I guess. So, yeah, not a super exciting summer, but um, now that we're back, you know, we'll, we'll be we'll be back doing podcasts and, and doing some other content. All right. So now that the updates are out of the way, uh, we can get into our first topic, which is a, a kind of quick news topic around the Mark Monitor uh, domain registrar. Uh, Z, you ended up this this popped up on your radar, so I'll uh, I'll let you take this one away. Yeah, and this one, um, first of all, I will say if you publish a blog, please put dates somewhere, anywhere. I mean, this blog has no dates anywhere. So I had no, I had to go and try and figure out how long ago this was. I figured it was popping up on news news feed, so it was recent. They published it on Twitter on I think the twenty eighth of August, so that's how I know it's recent. But the blog itself doesn't doesn't really have any like just date available for me to look at. Anyway, so talking about the actual issue here, Mark Monitor, if you're not familiar with them, and I certainly wasn't, it's more of a corporate product. Basically what happens is, you know, a corporation, they've got their main domain or whatever. They're a domain management solution that tries to kind of protect all those corporate brands from things like, you know, counterfeiting. So somebody registering like a very similar domain or something along those lines. So they register thousands of domain names and just kind of park them and maybe parking message whatever on the page but they have thousands of domains open and what ended up happening when one evening was 
effective, or I don't know if it was evening, I'm using that term, but I don't actually have the date or the hour this happened. But effectively, (laughs) yeah, it's going to fit. I'll, I'll fit, I'll fit what happened to what I want. But, um, what, uh, Ian here, Ian Carroll is the author, discovered is they suddenly got hundreds of alerts on their, I'm assuming, kind of bug bounty automation system that was looking for exposed and unregistered S3 buckets. So what you can do with S3, and that's Amazon storage, or AWS storage system thing, what can happen with that is if you can point a domain to S3, and then you can have it read the host and actually figure out what bucket to look into, what S3 bucket. So you can point domain, and if you forget to actually register the bucket, or you remove the bucket because you don't need it anymore, but forget about the domain, an attacker can go ahead and claim that same bucket and then start serving content under that domain. Um, and, you know, attacking all of your users, essentially. With these sorts of domains, I can't imagine the users were too too important. Like, I don't believe this would have happened with any, like, active-use domain, although with 60,000, I mean, maybe. Well, but effective- didn't it claim that some of those domains that they operated were, like, Fortune 100 companies or something? Well, yes, they're Fortune 100 companies, but that just means, like, you know, maybe... Just as an example here, you know, they registered walmart.cd because Walmart's a Fortune 100 company. Walmart.cd is a domain they wanted to protect, you know, to keep somebody oh, else from enough. registering it. But they're not actually using like Walmart isn't using walmart.cd. These are. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I believe these are park domains because of what they talked about later on was once this was getting fixed, the pages started serving. These, uh, this domain is registered and protected by Mark Monitor page. Uh, yeah, so okay, that makes sense. Ultimately, they, they don't give in a precise timeline, but within about an hour or within hours of this happening, within getting the alerts, uh, Mark Monitor started displaying the park page, and uh, basically the vulnerability was disappearing as they got control over the S3 buckets. What's interesting about this is, or what stood out to me at least, is the fact that one, they captured about 800 buckets automatically. Like the scope of, like the number of domains that they, Ian, must have been looking at for this and for their automation. Like, I don't know. It's just more, I guess, than I expected. I'm not surprised because, I mean, there's a lot of bug bounties out there. Um, And he mentioned others being able to capture a similar number of buckets. So, like, you know, that's a lot of automation that's going into, you know, staying on top of these bug bounties. Uh, so that just kind of stood out to me. The vulnerability itself is pretty straightforward. Most likely, I could imagine a dev was just like, you know, they set this up, they're going to switch over to using S3 or whatever, um, and then they're, you know, switch everything over to use Net and then go and register all the buckets. By doing it as part of their process, it seems like it happened pretty quickly that they registered the buckets after this incident actually happened, so it seems like it was intended. Maybe not the right process, and I was kind of thinking, like, if these are park domains, it's maybe not a huge risk. That said, what could have been, or for an attacker to have abused this, to start serving their own content, like, yes, they could have, but only during that short hour, two hour, whatever long period. You would have needed a very prepared attacker to be like, if this happens, we're going to launch this attack. Which, I, I mean, you know, some APTs maybe were just waiting for something like that and then could. But potentially a more damaging attack or some that could have been done automatically is if they were to register, once they have control of the domain, they can register and get an HTTPS certificate for those domains. That could be a lot more damaging. Oh, mm, That's a very interesting take on it. And that could be done automatically. And while something like Let's Encrypt will publish that out to the transparency log, so it could be kind of obvious that it happened, my understanding is you don't need to publish into the transparency logs until you're about to use the domain. So in theory, somewhere, you know, the certificate could have been handed out, but not into the certificate log just yet. It only needs to be out there before before it's used. Um... I'm not too sure what the policy is on that, so I don't want to make any 
strict claims on that because I know HTTPS and like certificate issuing does have a lot of policies that place try and follow around that. But this does feel like at least an attack that's viable with this. Oh, yeah, I mean, I only like glanced uh, through some of the some of the details, but uh, yeah, that didn't even occur to me really. So that's that's a cool thing to bring up. Um, yeah. And I guess the last thing I'd pull out out of this thing is he does mention security at markmonitor.com. He sent an email there, went unacknowledged. It seems odd that a company like this wouldn't at least have a security contact, and I totally agree with the author that they should have a way of disclosing security issues. At the same time, he also uh, makes mention, you know, this fact inhibited reporting um, of this issue in a timely manner, and it feels like this wasn't really an issue they were unaware of. Like I said, I imagine this being a dev went and kind of made this change and was actively working on it. So I don't feel like calling them out on it because you can't report this in a timely manner really was... Like, trying to report this, especially once you're aware that they're already trying to fix it, feels almost like getting into that big bounty category. At least to me. Um, it feels like if you know they're already working on it and aware of it, trying to report it is just trying to get money out of it. Yeah, I could I could kind of see that. Um, like you were saying, like the issue was exposed for such a short amount of time. Um, so... Well, and they yeah, seemed I, I aware of it very quickly. Yeah, like I imagine when he was getting the alerts, they were probably getting the alerts just as quickly. So um, it was it was almost kind of a race, I guess, to see who could um, who could report it first and who could fix it first. Um, but yeah, kind of an like an interesting situation. It's not really something that happens very often. Um, I, I don't think we've covered an issue that's kind of similar to this uh, i mean subdomain takeovers happen plenty but this scale is what makes it yeah kind of crazy mass. yeah is what makes it interesting all right so uh our next topic is a neat jwt token exfiltration through open redirect and data lore um through an endpoint that handles authentication with a jetbrains account at first uh this redirect bug seemed somewhat useless to the researcher because it wouldn't redirect with the JWT token of the account, uh, not directly at least. Um, but they discovered that by specifying um, the auth URL parameter, uh, which had to be a JetBrain subdomain, um, it would send the JWT token in that request since JetBrains would need it for the authentication. Um, so the researcher then tried specifying their own uh, JetBrains JWT token inside of that auth URL request. Um, and then they smuggled the return to parameter that was used in the open redirect um, so that JetBrains would use that to, like that parameter was oh. used so JetBrains could redirect the user after they successfully authenticated. Um, Jump in so a they little were kind bit. of able to combine those. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, these are separate endpoints. Um, you kind of talked about just the auth, auth URL parameter. That's in a separate endpoint from the data, from the main, uh, or from the first open redirect that the author found. Uh, the first URL that he found, this JetBrains auth, was in datalore.jetbrains.com. And that that's just kind of a traditional open redirect. Send the request there, give it a return to parameter, and you can give it any URL, and it'll create a location header as it's pretty classic um, setup there. And I'll also apologize for chat spamming. That's a bug that I'll have to fix for for next stream. Um, anyway, with with that, um, it just standard open redirect. Then what he found was on account.jetbrains.com. So this is a separate endpoint, the JWT auth. That one, it's still a data lore endpoint, uh, but that's the one that takes the auth URL. Um, and that has to be a JetBrains URL, and it'll redirect there with the JWT token. Uh, so then his attack, ultimately, merging them, provides the auth URL to the open redirect which then redirects uh, with both JWTs. The one that's been specified with the first auth URL, that one includes a JWT. And then it, when it goes to that location, that one redirects to the return URL and includes the JWT parameters that it received. Um, so yes. it is two separate endpoints. I feel like you kind of spoke about them as if it were, was the same endpoint and two different parameters. 
yeah, sorry. So that is a good clarification. Um, they are like the the endpoint to initially get the token sent is is a different endpoint. That's that's correct. Um, but yeah, basically, it was two different bugs that when you put them together, like on their own, they might not be that useful. But when put together, um, they they created this unique uh, attack where you could just exfiltrate the uh, JWT token through the open redirect. Yeah, um, so the, that was pretty cool. These sort of a so I've been seeing a lot of, um, I guess, discussion, a little bit of drama over whether or not open redirects are actually vulnerabilities, whether or not you should report them. I've seen them. that too. And weighing in on that aspect a little bit, it's one of those issues that, correct, on its own, it's kind of a minor reputation issue. You know, redirect to a phishing page, it makes your phishing a little bit stronger. But on its own, like, it's not a vulnerability. But that doesn't mean it should be ignored. Um, it's more of a defense in depth because it enables other vulnerabilities. Yeah, I guess the way I'd put it is I would I think it's perfectly reasonable to report uh, open redirect vulnerabilities, but I think it's unreasonable to expect things from them. Like I think that's part of the reason there's been a bit of drama is I think even on this podcast, we might have covered a few open redirect type bugs where the company either refuse to like acknowledge it or they refuse to pay it or whatever um refusing to acknowledge it i think is is a little bit less forgiving but i mean refusing sometimes to it's pay necessary. out for that i think is sometimes yeah. like that is just the intended feature and that's then not a bug so i would kind of disagree with you on okay to report but it depends on context i would say in a bug bounty I mean, one, if you just want the money, sure, whatever, report it, see if you get the money. I mean, big bounty or whatever you want to call that. You know, I, I don't really like that. But you very well might get paid out on, so who am I to say don't claim free money? That said, I would say, you know, wait until you actually have a proven vulnerability with it, so something else, on a bug bounty. But when it comes to doing, like, an application assessment, yeah, I'd report it every time. Um, if I'm doing like an, an assessment for somebody, um, you know, hire to take a look at the application, then you report it, you give them the information, you know, this isn't a high. It's just one of those things like you should be aware of this and make the decision for yourself. Here's kind of what could happen and what your risks are laid out from. Don't try and exaggerate and call it, you know, high or critical or something like that. But at least let them know it's there because then they can make the proper decision based on that. But in a bug bounty, I would generally say, you know, bug bounty should be reserved for, like, actually having an impact. My opinion, at least. And I feel like that's something that a, a bounty can set their own terms to say if they want those lower impact things, too. That's kind of my thinking, is that, like, if you're running a bounty program on, let's say, Hacker One or whatever, you can kind of set that in your scope. That said, it, it's not, you know, guaranteed that anyone who's reporting is going to respect your your scope guidelines but um you you can kind of filter that out in that way and yeah i, I wouldn't want to fault people for reporting the issue um just expecting something out of it that's kind of where i come down um yeah and and, I, uh, I don't think companies should necessarily complain that it's there i mean i totally get when some with the big bounty, and if somebody's, you know, again, setting it's like high severity, trying to make a claim that it's really impactful when it's not. Um, I don't know. I mean, ultimately, it, it comes down to every program can make their own decision. But it's something I think it's important to be aware of. I don't think it's something you can just ignore until there's an impact either. Yeah. Um... What I thought was uh, pretty cool about this one was just the fact that you would kind of exchange your attacker uh, JWT token for the for the victims. Um, so that's where the title comes into play, right? The eye for an eye. Um, the patch for this was fairly simple. They just fixed the open redirect. Uh, they also removed the legacy authentication process and implemented OAuth integration with JetBrains as an identity provider. So looks kind of good on JetBrains here. They kind of took that defense in depth step as well as uh, fixing the open redirect. So, um, yeah, overall, a pretty cool issue, I think. And, um, and uh, a good patch story at the end. So, 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I was saying this, I was feeling like, why isn't JetBrains using a bit more of a more established protocol for it? Maybe they implemented this just a long time ago, like said Legacy, but it felt like it very much could have been a bug farm had they not just removed it. Yeah. All right, so let's move to an access control vulnerability in U-Track, uh, also a JetBrains product. Uh, this is also, I believe, the same researcher who reported the last issue. Uh, let me just confirm that. Yeah, Yuri Sen. Um, U-Track is a project management solution, um, which is provided by JetBrains for tracking issues and whatnot. Uh, when this researcher was looking at the API internals, they discovered an undocumented endpoint for returning issue descriptions without markdown markup. Uh, this endpoint, probably because it was undocumented and they weren't really expecting people to use it, um, which w isn't an excuse, but it wasn't protected with role validation or like any privilege controls, meaning any user could basically leak issue details, uh, whether they had access to view that issue or not. Uh, and because the key format for issues is fairly straightforward, um, you can see in that one, I like the in the example code they post, I believe it's JWT and then a series of five numbers. Um, so with the identifier being so short and guessable, it, it looks like it'd be fairly easy to take advantage of that bug if you knew about it. So pretty simple issue, but it, it could have some impact because a lot of the things that you're going to see in like issue trackers are potentially previously reported security bugs um, that might not be fixed yet. So there is some some impact there of pe people being able to leak those details. They are usually hidden and behind authentication for a reason. So. Yeah, I, um, this feels like it just shouldn't exist, period. Like, a method that does anything here without passing through the authentication. I mean, sure, you need, you need some things that go around it, but um, this just feels like such a stupid issue. I mean, sure, it's hidden. That's not a that's security by obscurity. Um, I just wonder what type of development practices they have where this was able to just slip through. At the same time, I mean, it is kind of similar to just IDOR. You know, if you give it the right idea, it goes through, but... Oh, no. I This is another point where centralize your auth tracking and something like this should just jump out. Unless somebody decides they really didn't want any auth on some reason. I mean, it could be used internal, but yeah, really simple issue to understand, at least. Yeah, seems right for abuse. Um, in terms of timeline, though, it was reported August 13th of 2020, and it was also patched uh, August 13th of 2020. So it was patched same day. So got to give JetBrains some, some credit there as well. But um, yeah, like you said, could just <laughs> a really dumb issue. And, and I mean, to be fair, you would like this isn't an attack you could easily just pull off on mass. Uh, you would kind of need to know that your target was using U-Track and, I mean, you know, if they're at least running it off of the JetBrains URL, then it should be pretty obvious they're using U-Track. Although you might not be able to see the, um, you might not have access to the issue tracker to even know that. Yeah, so are, that's what I was thinking. But I mean, there's a lot of cases where somebody just wouldn't have access to some details. Yeah. So, like, I think this could be taken advantage of easily if you knew about the bug and you had a target in mind, but you would, that's kind of the, the point I'm trying to hit home, I guess, is that you would, this would probably be like a more targeted uh, type of attack if you were going after a specific vendor. All right, um, up next, we have a GoCMS issue detailed by Sonar Source. Uh, GoCMS, for those not aware, is primarily used for blogs, portfolios, those kinds of things. Um, I think... I've actually used GoCMS a little bit in the past for like a personal blog that I ran. Well, Not we use blog, it but... for the uh, Day Zero blog. Oh, yeah, that's right. We do. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just like a CMS for, for blogs and whatnot. Uh, and one of the important features for an admin that's common across uh, these content management systems is theming options. Uh, Ghost 4.0.0 added a theme preview feature to the admin panel's front end. And that preview page uh, contained a message event listener, which will literally just write arbitrary content that you um, would pass in the message. It would pass it into the page contents um, in the frame with whatever is received in the message. 
And because there's no verification on the origin of the message, nor any frame options set or the frame, an frame ancestors set and the content security policy, um, because none of that is in place, uh, it allows an XSS into uh, the admin panel, which you could use to run JavaScript in the context of the admin. Um, so that can be used to take over accounts or just perform actions on behalf of the admin in general. Um, fairly straightforward issue with how the impact is. Yeah, it's it's um, another easy issue. It's one of those things where trying to discover this would need... Um, you'd need to be aware of all the events that are passing. So this is DOM-based in a sense. Be, or it is DOM-based um, or DOM-based access. Finding the input to it, though, is being aware, like, oh, it adds this window listener for this particular event, and I can send, and I can frame it to send the event to it. Not an unheard of entry point, but it is something to be aware of, because I think a lot of people will look at the URL headers. They'll look at um, URL parameters, maybe the host they can modify with or something, if they just use the IP address. Well, things like that, uh, but remembering that, like, window, or not window head, uh, window events and stuff can also be a source of input or cross-site scripting. Makes it at least a little bit more tricky to discover. Not too crazy. Like I said, window event listener isn't exactly uncommon. But just something to be aware of when you're actually doing the bug hunting. This bug would be trickier to find in automated fashion, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's a good point to bring up. The patch here was to just remove the functionality altogether, uh, the preview component. Um, if you look at the commit details, they link to the commit where they, they patch the issue. Um, it, they basically just say, this was something we were working on, like just had in development. Uh, it, we didn't push it to production or anything. It was just kind of leftover code. So, you know, classic leftover code from development that ended up being abused. So they just removed it altogether. Um, although they point out in the blog post that if you had the, a, the similar issue and something else and you needed to actually fix it instead of just being able to remove the component, really all you needed to do here was check the origin against like a whitelist or something. Um, so, yeah. A fairly simple issue, uh, again. Yeah, I guess that in particular, checking the origin might have been a little bit harder for something like Ghost because the admin panel doesn't necessarily run on the site configuration. Uh, so in the site configuration, you can include the URL for the site, but that doesn't need to be where the admin panel runs at. Uh, although I guess it could try and read out the uh, inappropriate host from the host header itself uh, being passed around. That could probably work, but there is a bit of a gotcha when it comes to trying to detect the right header because it can be configured on any domain, or the admin can be configured on any domain. The ghost can kind of run as this headless provider. It doesn't doesn't need to be the one actually serving the blog or doing a lot of other stuff. Uh, yeah. Like for day zero, we use that to like enter our post, but the actual blog that you guys see has no indication that's ghost there at all. Because I asked like ghost posts to Jekyll, and then we have a static site. Leaking secret details, eh? Wow. <laughs> yes, somebody, somebody's going to hack the static website. Yep. D disappointed. <laughs> All right. So, uh, in another account takeover involving mishandling of cross origin messages, we have Facebook and $126,000 worth of bugs. Uh, that might be the highest number we've seen in one blog post so far. Uh, well, we had maybe. that crypto issue. That, uh, that is true. I was just thinking about that. Maybe the crypto issue was worth more. Yeah, well, that one was like, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of USC or whatever, like the US coin, stable coin was. There's lots of them. It was one of the pegged coins. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's true. So maybe not the highest one, but it's still de quite definitely a bit. nothing to scoff at. Yeah. Uh, so, Z, I'll let you uh, get into some of the bugs here. Uh, there's three of them. Yeah, this one had three bugs, and it took me a little while to kind of understand them. Because there is some background that you need to understand when it comes to how Facebook's messaging. So, these bugs are all happening in apps.facebook.com. Effectively, all that is, like, you could register your app, and Facebook will host it inside of an iframe on the apps.facebook domain. You could then communicate with Facebook using post messages, you know, post message, some action you want to do. 
it'll send that up to the apps on Facebook. It'll do that action. One particular action is showing an OAuth dialog. So that's where you could be on this game and they want you to authorize it to actually act like your account information or something. So you could trigger that dialog sending this. Um, it was a JSON RPC call. You'd send it that JSON RPC call and it would give you, ultimately, it would return you the access token. So with this first vulnerability, um, and we, I'll kind of touch on the background as I go with this. The first issue comes with that dialogue prompt, the OAuth prompt. As it's going up there, you have to pass it several parameters. Um, first of all, so it can capture the response or the access token that actually comes from Facebook's OAuth. What it will do is it'll rewrite your redirect URI. So with normal OAuth requests, the OAuth URL, you include a redirect URI, which once a user authorizes the application, it'll redirect them to the provided redirect URI. So you end up using this Facebook, this Arbiter, uh, and then origin equals attacker.com. That way Facebook can get the response back and it'll send the message back saying like, uh, it'll use the attacker.com as the target origin. So we were just talking about that on the last topic with Ghost, how it needs to be validating that origin. Facebook in this case, you know, sends it, uses the target origin to kind of target your specific frame. Um, So that kind of, sorry, I, like I said, this, this one took me a little while trying to understand, and I'm definitely struggling to put it all into a nice, concise summary here. Um, the core of the vulnerability comes when trying to craft this redirect URI. Uh, there's a desync between what the JavaScript thinks the reader, redirect URI is and what the server parses it as. Uh, so the important difference is when you're setting the parameters for this, if you send redirect URI underscore URI and redirect underscore URI open square bracket zero and no closing square bracket in JavaScript, when you send an object, those are two distinct keys and it's just going to read the key, put an equal sign, put the value ampersand and then the next key and kind of go on like that to craft the URL. So it sees those as two distinct uh, redirect URL are two distinct keys. And so the URL that it creates has those two distinct keys in it. The server side on Facebook though, it sees redirect you underscore URI and it sees the one with the square bracket and zero. It doesn't see the ending square bracket. So normally you have the square bracket there to indicate, you know, an array. It doesn't see the end there. So it can parse an array key successfully. So it just ignores that and treats both of those as pointing to the redirect URI parameter. So that allows the attacker who can provide the uh, malformed redirect URI parameter, they can provide that one and overwrite the redirect URI that the server site sees. Uh, so what they're able to do using that is when they make the OAuth request, it sends the app ID. Uh, saying, hey, I'm this application. Usually with that, you're going to have whitelisted redirect URI. So like Instagram.com isn't going to redirect the user to an attacker's website with their access token. But that redirect, I believe, happens kind of on the front end. Facebook just saying like, okay, go ahead and redirect them. So the server is validating against the malformed redirect URI and saying, yep, this is the right URL. Go ahead, do the redirect. The JavaScript on the front end is seeing the other redirect URI, the attacker's website. And it's seeing like, okay, Facebook's approved this redirect. Therefore, let's send them over to redirect URI. And they're different URLs. So you're able to send it in a way that will, auth the attacker can authorize a first party application like Instagram.com, but it'll send the code back to uh, the attackers, like the arbiter that I talked about before. It'll send it back to that iframe giving the attacker you know, a first party token, which has all the privileges attached to it. So a little bit of a complicated description, but the gist of it just comes down to that distinction between how the two things are parsing the parameters and the fact that one thinks the redirect URI is one thing and the other sees it as something else. Uh, in yeah, particular, it's kind of a desync. 
Yeah, kind of a desync. I mean, it's technically parameter pollution where you provide the same parameter more than once, or at least it's kind of like that. Um, because you are malforming the second parameter. It's, I'd maybe argue it's not exactly parameter pollution, but it's close enough that they call it that in the write-up. I'm kind of okay with that. Uh, really simple issue, but you've got to understand the application in order to get how to actually exploit it. The second bug here, um, and just for clarification, the first bug, $42,000 for that. The second bug, also bounty of $42,000. Third bug, $42,000 also. Uh, this third one is again related to that Arbiter, which is basically like a proxy that Facebook uses. So, so that um, when, when they're framing your request and they're making requests on your behalf, they get the response back to the Arbiter who then knows where to send it. Um, so the second one is that origin at the end of the URL that usually says like attacker.com or whatever can be blank. You can just ignore that. And how that ends up working is then the applications will register like, Hey, you know, there's no origin. This is my domain. So you pretend it was targeted at this domain. And when you do that, it'll try and do at least some security checks. It'll check, hey, well, I'm framing this application. What domains do they own? And they'll check that to make sure, you know, they're okay to pretend to be this domain. So you can't just say, yeah, I'm totally Instagram.com. And yeah, send me all their messages. Uh, so the bug, though, is the fact that when you actually send that OAuth request, you specify your app ID in that request. It's not using the one that, it's not necessarily using the same ID that's actually framed. Um, it could be a different application. Uh, so because of that split, you can approve and say, yeah, send all the messages without an origin here. Um, and say, yeah, it's my domain. But then the app that you're actually getting the OAuth for is Instagram.com or something. I keep using Instagram because that was the choice that they made for their attack. Um, you can effectively fill it in there and just get it to send the token. So again, kind of a straightforward issue. The issues are, it's more about the attack in this case and figuring out how to actually use that bug to do something. Uh, now it oh. is worth noting too, that that second bug, it doesn't work on all first party applications. <clears throat> it seems um, that that might be because that's some of the apps have like a, a whitelisted arbiter with with no origin so yeah so that is um with all the oauth apps you're supposed to whitelist what your appropriate redirect uris are yeah so yeah only some of them will actually whitelist the arbiter without an origin because that is an acceptable like use case having it undefined is okay it's just what's unexpected is the change in app id but um, so yeah, you can only do this with those first-party applications that do use a origin-less arbiter. Yeah, e even some third-party applications, I believe they said, uh, weren't vulnerable. So it was kind of a it was kind of a hit or miss if you were able to, to do what you wanted with the second bug. It's it's not quite as powerful as the first bug. Well, all you need is one. As soon as you have that first-party token, you have access to all the API calls as that user. So I mean, across all. Like you can influence all first party applications that way, though. Oh, well, Just... you can. All of the Facebook APIs are open to you. Like they all they're all authenticating with Facebook to get a token to access Facebook's API. So a first party token has access to everything Facebook can do. Okay, fair enough. So then you would just need to keep trying it until you 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 just need to find one. Order. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the fact that at least one first party does that means it can be used to take over an account as long right. i guess that it is worth mentioning um that i guess as long as the user has authorized that application that's kind of the other side of it too yeah so if you've never like authorized instagram or whatever then it but if you saw instagram pop up you're probably thinking they're an okay application to authorize yeah for sure um but yeah i'll let you continue there yeah well and now I'm just getting on the third issue. This one feels a little bit more fun, but it's another 
when you're sending that JSON RPC that I mentioned before, show dialogue, you can mention a version with that. And ideally you're sending like, you know, version two, you want to use version two of the API and it'll just automatically prepend that into the URL it generates, but it doesn't check the version. It doesn't make sure it's actually number. It doesn't make sure it's well formatted. So what they found is they could basically trick it into by providing a version as API slash a GraphQL question mark. The rest of the URL kind of gets invalidated because it's, after that question mark, so it becomes part of the query. And the first part, it's just sending it over to API slash GraphQL. Suddenly you're making GraphQL requests when all Facebook thinks it's doing is showing an OAuth dialog. So I thought that was a cool and a fun issue. It was definitely the most fun bug of the three. Um, and maybe not as complex in terms of the attack flow that you had to understand, but just the issue itself, I thought, was was a lot more. Yeah, it's it's a bit read. of that. Uh, it's like the element of surprise, almost like you just you don't expect the version to be where you have the vulnerability. Yeah, it's it's maybe something like that. I don't know why. I just think it's a little bit more fun of an issue. Yeah, same. So uh, the timeline was pretty good. Facebook fixed the issues really quickly. Uh, the first bug was reported August fourth, fixed August sixth. Uh, second bug was reported August 9th, fixed August 12th, and then the third was August 12th, uh, fixed August 17th. So um, within like a week for, for all of them, each bug uh, gave the researcher $42,000. That's where you get the grand total of 126000 Not a bad, uh, not a bad payoff for the, for the researcher. Yeah, not, not a bad week. Doing the research. Yeah, pretty good, uh, pretty good week for that person, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, Facebook, it it's totally makes sense that they would pay that much for these issues because being able to take over Facebook accounts in that manner is is something that's really crucial. So Yeah, and it should be mentioned that with the uh third one there, like basically you can make any sort of GraphQL mutations like that, and it's going to be injecting like the users cookies and everything else that authorizes them to hit the API. So all of these effectively led to account takeover. All right, so we'll get into our next topic here, which is a Snapchat bug uh, with something called one tap passwords, which is kind of weird because I don't think we've covered one tap passwords before. I don't remember seeing that phrase used. Yeah, um, I'm not I don't know sure. If that's just something unique to Snapchat, or I'm not uh, sure. So what it's... it seems like is you know some sort of it's almost like a one time password, or it seems like it's that sort of system, but it's not a multi factor system. Um, so it's not like an OTP in that sense, where you have it with a multi-factor. It seems like it's just like it gives you a password that you can use instead of actually using a, instead of using your normal password. I'm not sure, I don't use Snapchat, and that stood out to me too. I wasn't exactly sure what one tap password. Yeah. Um, it, but anyway, the bug is in the authentication flow of using uh, one tap passwords. Uh, sorry, did I cut you off, See, Were you going to say something there? Yeah, I was just going to comment that the one thing that also seemed weird to me, and I imagine you maybe were about to hit this, the post uh, SC auth, like the fact that you're getting this uh, one tap password, you get it in the request, in a post request, the slash logout. Just that it doesn't jive with my understanding of authentication that you take that. Might as well just explain the issue. Um, with the logout, you make the request there, they get a. Now, I don't know if maybe normally, um, they do show this normal one, they send the post, user ID, all that, or this attack, actually, they only show the attack, sorry, and in the response, they get the OTP, in the response, they get a token that they can then send over to the login. So that seems to be the normal flow, I'm not sure if it's something special because they're logging out of something, I don't know. It, it stands out, and thank you, Balika, for, that's eight months now subscription. Um, yeah, I don't know. The flow seems weird that you make a request to log out and then log in with the token you get from the logout. That just seems really weird. The issue or the vulnerability, you send a user ID when you send that logout and it trusts that user ID instead of looking at, hey, what user? I guess I can't really look at what user's logged in. Um, you're not logged in in theory. But you send it the user ID and it gives you the token that you need to pass to 
the login page. So you can kind of see the issue there. You give it any other user's user ID and you get a token that you can pass to log in, log in as them. It's like an IDOR. Um, I wouldn't say IDOR. Well, kind of similar in the way that it works. Yeah, I mean, IDOR, I usually think of with the get requests and the IDs. Uh, this is just bad authentication system. I don't, I don't this know. Is I guess bad design. <laughs> I, yeah, this design doesn't really make any sense to me. Like you were saying, yeah, when I was I'm... looking at the logout endpoint, I was originally thinking, okay, you could use this to log out any user. That's kind of interesting, but it's not much more interesting than a DOS. And then I looked at the request or the response they posted in this, and I saw the token. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Yeah, Weird. it confuses me a little bit. Whatever, that's their architecture. Um, you can log in using logout. Um, yeah, I, again, straightforward issue. As I mean, a lot of these have been this episode, but have very significant impact. Yeah. So uh, this resulted in a twenty-five thousand dollar bounty because, as you said, it's a pretty serious issue. So, yeah, I mean. Yeah, when I was reading through this, I just didn't really understand what the, like, how they designed it this way, I guess. It's um, a weird choice of name, like, to call it output. That said, it could be for some legacy reason they hit it. There could be another thing, and, like, that is usually what is one tap password. Maybe it's just my misunderstanding of how one tap password works. So, I'm I'm not too worried about the fact that it seemed confusing to me. It did seem confusing. I imagine there's a decent explanation for why they've gone that route. I just don't know it. Yeah. Now, I did go looking in the comments a little bit just to see if I could get some insight on how they fixed the issue. Uh, it seems it is kind of vague, though. They're just like, uh, we deployed a fix. Can you try it again and see if it works? And then the researcher says, yeah, fix seems legit. Um, now, if I use a different user ID, I get a 401 unauthorized. So. I'm guessing they're they're using one of the other headers they send with it. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, that is kind of unfortunate because that's one thing I really like to do with Hacker One reports is when they're when they're full disclosure, it is you can get some really nice context out of the comments. But um, you can. Yeah, I'm seems actually a little bit vague in this one. I'm actually a little bit surprised. Maybe Snapchat's changing. I remember looking at some of their issues before, and they would only be partial disclosures, just that summary line. We haven't covered them too much. Yeah. But yeah. Partial disclosure is, is always like it feels really common on Hacker One for some of the bigger companies. Which sucks because like I said, I, I love looking through the comments. That's something really it's a unique back and forth that you don't really see anywhere else. Like if somebody does a write up, they're not generally talking about the all the back and forth between them and the vendor and what they figured out. Sometimes they do, usually if it's their tr if they're trying to go after them, like if it was a bad experience. But if it's a good experience and you're following up with each other on whether or not the issue is fixed and rolling a new fix or something, um, yeah, it's just something you don't really see outside of Hacker One, really. So I mean, I like I seeing the for. patch information, which sometimes we see in the comments. I did just look at Snapchat's activity, and they are still doing a. Um, at least the two that I looked at, which is been two. Um, they're still doing limited disclosure, so this one for some reason wasn't. So this was the exception. Okay. Yeah. All right, so we'll get into our uh, last topic here, which is uh, some research into Azure Logic apps, um, which these are basically like workflows for automation. Uh, the blog post from NetSpy first details some background on Azure apps uh, and some of the roles that exist. Uh, then it goes into detail on how those roles and permissions can be taken advantage of. The two main roles they cover are the reader roles and the contributor roles. Contributor obviously being the more privileged and more interesting of the two. Um, even with the reader, though, they point out a few things that you can take advantage of with that permission set. Uh, for example, inside of the workflows, you can set up like HTTP request actions. And because those actions might need to be able to authenticate uh, to interact with some endpoint, they have auth credentials uh, inside of those actions that you can specify. So if you have the reader role, you could pull any authentication credentials if they are in um, some like HTTP request action. Yeah, or um, other actions could have that too. Just anywhere, any action that ends up getting 
effectively you can read the source to any of the actions that you have or any of the uh apps that you have access to so if you attach any secrets they could be read there http being kind of the obvious case but could be anything there are others yeah um another thing they point out is you can pull the history of logic app runs which contain inputs and outputs um and if you didn't specify to um like mark the inputs and outputs as secure those will be directly in the history of the logic app runs so if there's any secrets that were in like especially the output or just anywhere um those can leak out through the history as well so I'm not um, sure if you can mark them secure, and I haven't used Azure Logic Apps, so maybe I just misunderstood. But I believe what they were talking about is more having a secure provider for them. So that would be where it like, gets it dynamically out of a key vault or something of that sort, rather than just you need to remember to mark it as secure. So they do uh, state that, yeah, you should be using a key vault. Um, that said, you can mark them as secure because in the okay, uh, mitigation section... Yeah, it's more, it's towards the end of the post, but they mentioned that, um, yeah, you should be, you should check the checkbox for sensitive actions. And then when you go to view it, um, when it shows the inputs and outputs, the outputs will show content not shown due to security configuration. So, um, yeah, that, that's one of the mitigations they suggest. Um, but yeah, one of the other things you could do with the reader role is you could also access version history, which means even if your current workflow is secure, um, like they've moved kind of like what Z was saying, maybe if they just moved the secrets into like a key vault, um, if a past version had hard coded credentials and those credentials were never changed, um, then you could still be compromised because they can access the credentials through the version history. So yeah, just a few things to be aware of, I guess, for anybody that you give the, the reader role to. Yeah. And that's definitely not, uh, odd case to have you know passwords say being hard-coded during your early runs while you're developing it and then later okay now let's make this more secure and you can't delete past versions and past versions will be there even if you don't run them uh, so there's two definitely big ways sensitive information could get leaked like you have to build it right from the start yeah uh now the contributor role it uh the attacks get a little bit more impactful. Um, the main thing they focus on there is hijacking and reusing existing API connections to sensitive services and like key vaults, for example. I think you um, could so they argue get... the more impactful aspect. And they mention this in the report. They don't try and say like, this is super impactful. They actually mention that this issue technically is not violating the permission model of Azure Logic Apps at all. It's just a side effect that you might not be aware of. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of a PSA. Yeah, um, like it, it's an issue that you definitely might not be thinking of or realize. But sir, I'll let you finish describing it. Yeah, all good. Um, so yeah, you could reuse existing API connections to like sensitive services and whatnot. Uh, create a new logic app that uses those. Um, pull out any secrets that you want, and then just delete the app. Right? It's it's a little bit of a stealthy attack. Um, they go into detail on how that can be automated. Um, with like setting up a logic app to exfiltrate secrets over something like an HTTP connection, then destroy itself. Um, I'm not going to go too in depth on that, but if you're interested, that is there. They talk about how you could use templates to be able to run one on demand, basically for whenever you want to pull secrets out of something. Um, toward the end, they talk about some of the mitigations that can be put in place to avoid these attacks and just good practices in general. Pretty common sense things like making sure you keep track. Uh, close track of who has what permissions, um, using secret key vaults to make it harder to exfiltrate secrets, you know, just not leaving your credentials inside of the workflow actions, um, as well as that secure input-output setting I mentioned when running actions. Um, if you're running something that you know is going to have sensitive out outputs, then you would want to check that, right? So they just kind of draw attention to the fact that that is there, and, and that's what that's for. Yeah, um, most of the mitigations they offer defenses really end up being the same thing with secure development not hard coding credentials like i said uh, being aware of the privileges that is i think one of the bigger takeaways at least i've gotten out of this i haven't used logic apps i don't know if i'm going to ever use logic apps but being aware of like the api connections the fact that basically any 
any permission that the API connection has, every uh, contributor to Logic Apps have access to absolutely everything in there. So even if you add a API connection just to do some really small task, all of the permissions there are available to everybody else. Oh, yeah, that's kind of the important, I think, takeaway there, at least for me. So it's it's kind of a it seems like it's kind of a generic problem with like cloud providers and just the permission model in general, because this, this is definitely not the first time we've covered a topic that touches on how permissions can be abused in the cloud. I, I know Cloudflare did one. Um, I don't remember if it was on AWS or what it was, but we've we've covered other similar topics before. Cloud authentication, um, like the whole IAM stuff, um, identity and access management, it's complicated. There are so many ways things can go. Yeah, whenever you have like fine grained permissions like that, it's just, um, it can get crazy. This is not as much about the fine grained permissions um, as much as it is just how many permissions are available to those roles and what you might not be aware of. Um, but yeah, it is worth noting that all these attacks assume most likely an insider type threat. Uh, you already need to have some level of access to pull these sort of attacks off. Um, that doesn't mean they're not worth covering or being aware of. It's just um, that does limit the impact, right? Um, so yeah, insider attack is primarily what I think this could be used for. Well, insider it could be used penetration that context testing. Too. It's privilege escalation. You've escalated to this something with access to it. Than exactly. It. Yeah, you could privesque to it even if you were an outsider, but um, yeah, I, mainly what I had in my head when reading this was insider threats. So yeah, um, fairly long blog post, but nothing super complicated. It just talks about some of the the flow of how things work. Particularly, they they really deep dive into the API connection stuff. They have some diagrams and stuff. So if that sounds interesting to you, that is all there. But yeah, I mean just. Like I said, kind of a PSA post, just saying, here's some of the dangers involved with these permissions, um, and here's some things you can do to try to prevent it. Um, but when you're dealing with these permissions and you're giving those permissions to people, there's always going to be a way to take advantage of it. You can just, all you can do is try to make it hard for them, right? So, yeah. That said, that pretty much sums up all of our topics. We will move into our shoutouts, or rather, I should say shoutout, because Z just has one. Uh, I don't have any today. Yeah, um, just, so Z, I'll let you take this, this shoutout. Just one shoutout here. I just came across this this morning. It's a Raider, or sorry, Raider web application testing framework. I thought it was kind of interesting, at least in theory. I'm not sure how useful it will be in practice. The idea being that sometimes you have some complex uh, authentication flows, um, and a lot of times you find vulnerabilities here, you script up your authentication, you know, write a Python script that's able to do the authentication, doing all your logic and stuff in there. And then you just wrap it in like a fuzzing loop or something. Or maybe the fuzzing loop's internal, whatever. You have to script it up manually and do a lot of that work. What this is looking at is trying to formalize it into just you write a config that defines kind of everything that it needs needs to do. Um, and just potentially makes the testing a little bit easier uh, by being able to model kind of that finite state machine that is like authentication logic for you so you can just focus kind of on what matters. It's a Python application, but the configuration is Highlang. It's a Lisp variant, which I think is going to reduce the number of people who actually give this a try. But you can see the example here. You define your flow, login, define your request, just saying what it is, what variables it needs set, and what variables it outputs. Define operation. Basically, it looks interesting, looks kind of straightforward to, well, as straightforward as using Lisp can be, uh, which effectively kind of ends up feeling or looking a little bit like writing the Python in Lisp brackets almost. That said, I thought it was interesting because this is. It is a common problem. Um, you need to do a lot of this kind of manual scripting. It looks promising. I'd have to play around with it a little bit more to actually kind of give it my thumbs up. But the fact that it looked promising, I want to at least kind of give it a quick shout out on here. Um, to at least check out as an option. Um, it does have a little fuzzer built into it also, so you can just give it a request and it'll figure out how to fuzz it for you. Um, and it'll 
fuzz. Once you define an authentication flow, we can fuzz that too. All right, neat. So yeah, that concludes all the topics we have for today's episode. Uh, thank you to everyone who tuned in. VODs are up on Twitch, uh, YouTube, and Anchor 24 hours after the podcast. Um, we will be having another podcast episode tomorrow covering the binary and, and lower level topics. Um, so be sure to tune in for that. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll see you guys tomorrow. And we hope you guys like the new format. Um, if you, again, just a shout out, if you guys have any ideas for conference talks or anything like that, uh, feel free to leave them in our Discord. And because uh, that, that is something we, we'd like to do at some point. So, um, but yeah, like I said, that's everything. Uh, thank you for tuning in and we'll see you all tomorrow at uh, 7 p.m.